0: Today's message about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is a very important one, and it's based on the letter that he wrote from a Birmingham jail. He wrote this letter on the 16th of April, 1963, and in this letter, amongst other things that he covered, he also covered strategies for nonviolent social change action, and those strategies are still Relevant and evergreen for today. So, I want to share a lot of information from this letter with you. First of all, he's in the Birmingham jail because he had come down there as the head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to fight segregation. And Birmingham was one of the cities that was most horrific at the time in being a very segregated place and a very difficult place for Black people to live. When he came down with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and others in the leadership of that organization, a letter was actually written by eight clergymen from Birmingham, including a rabbi. The rest were from churches, but one was a rabbi. They wrote this letter as kind of an open letter that was written in the local newspaper and they were discouraging the activity of these outsiders, as they called them, coming down from Montgomery and other places. And they said the actions of this group were unwise and untimely and would lead to violence. And so they were really trying to stop the movement. Dr. Martin Luther King was so disheartened by the fact that his fellow clergymen really did not catch and understand the vision. And so their letter, which was an open letter newspaper, appeared on the 12th of April, and his letter came out on the 16th. And it was a response to their letter, which was called Call to Unity, and it was in the Birmingham Post-Herald. Dr. Martin begins by saying that he usually doesn't spend a lot of time responding to those who disagree with him, because after all, if he did that, his whole life would be responding to disagreements rather than doing the work. However, in this case, he said he really did see his fellow clergymen as people of genuine goodwill. And he really wanted them to understand what he was doing and why. And he made the point that they didn't just come in as outsiders, but in fact, Birmingham was a member of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the affiliate in the Birmingham office asked for help and assistance because of the difficulty and the danger that was going on in Birmingham And so he says, I have organizational ties here, and I have been invited here, and I'm here because injustice is here. And he talked about carrying that gospel of freedom beyond his own hometown, just like if you see in the Bible where the Apostle Paul is trying to figure out where to go next on the missionary journey, and he has a vision where a man in Macedonia says, come over to Macedonia And help us. And he likens his call right now to just that situation. So, what I want to cover now are some of the vision statements that were in this Birmingham letter that he wrote to these pastors to help them understand. And he says as part of the vision was to create a relationship of love and brotherhood that was rooted in equality. Secondly, it was to rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. And third, it was to get to the promised land of racial justice. In spite of what he was seeing at the time and what people were really doing, he understood that the goal of America was freedom It was the sacred heritage of our nation, and he still believed in that goal of American freedom, and he didn't want the country to settle for anything less than brotherhood. Now, the problem that he articulated in this letter was, number one, that blacks were smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. Secondly, they were experiencing the aftermath of oppression on a continuous basis, which was the drain of self-respect and that drain of some bodiness. In other words, people were really being torn down from the basic fabric of their character losing dignity, self-respect in the sense of being somebody. And then thirdly, he says, an oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. And if you think about it, it's like that God-given part of those persons that at some level recognizes that they're made in the image of God is going to rise up and seek to be free which is their birthright in God. Dr. King also articulated some facts about fighting oppression. One of the things he said when you are fighting oppression, rarely or perhaps never are there any real gains without legal and nonviolent pressure. He said that groups rarely give up their privileges voluntarily. If you talk to individuals and they see the moral light, they may give up their posture that's actually prejudiced. However, groups, he says, do not give up that posture. Groups tend to be more immoral. And one way to think about this is groups often in the safety of the group move to group think and it's harder to break that as opposed to helping an individual understand something. He further said that freedom is never given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. So with this in mind, Dr. King also outlined four steps for nonviolent action. And these four steps are still relevant today. Number one is collection of the facts to determine if there is an injustice. And of course, in Birmingham, the facts had been collected. It was determined that indeed there was injustice. Secondly, you engage in negotiation. You really try to work things out with those on the other side of the fence. In this case, they had approached the city fathers, attempted to negotiate some terms. However, the city fathers had refused the good faith negotiations. They even had an economic community meeting where the local powers-to-be had agreed to a stop or a moratorium on having signs up that were very racially motivated and discriminatory signs. So for a brief period of time, they asked that there be a stop to the demonstrations and they were going to remove the signs. So the demonstrations were stopped. The signs in some places came down briefly, but then they went right back up. And many of the signs never came down. They stayed up the entire time. So this attempt at negotiation actually did not work. It was refused and it failed. So when negotiation doesn't work, you go to step three. Step three is self-purification. Knowing that you're going to have to move to the fourth step, which is direct action, you have to prepare yourself and get yourself ready. So in self-purification, Dr. King conducted a number of workshops on nonviolence. He talked to the people about accepting the blows physically and mentally that they were going to receive without retaliating in kind. He also talked about being able to endure the ordeals of prison because in the direct action stage, In civil disobedience actions, they would be thrown in jail. So they had to be ready to deal with being thrown in jail. So as they then approached the direct action phase, originally they were planning to have this major action take place around Easter time, which was the second biggest shopping time of the country back in those days, However, they postponed, decided not to do it then because an election was taking place and they didn't want to mar the election and have any confusion with that. So a number of times they actually delayed action, being sensitive to what was going on in the region. And finally, there came a day when it was time for the direct action. And what Dr. King says about direct action, he says what it does it dramatizes the issue that's going on so that it cannot be ignored. It is not a violent action. It's not a tension that comes from violence. It's a constructive, nonviolent tension. And what he maintained was that constructive, nonviolent tension, which raises up to the surface what's going on. Is actually necessary for growth. Dr. King also talked about the difference between just and unjust laws. And if you have an opportunity to read or listen to this letter from Birmingham jail, I'd really recommend it to really understand his discourse on just and unjust laws. He says that there are just laws. And we have a moral responsibility to obey the just laws. He says there are also some unjust laws. And we have a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws because unjust laws are no laws at all. If a law is considered unjust, that is a code that's been created that's out of harmony With the moral law, it's not rooted in eternal and natural law because segregation distorts the soul and damages people personally, their personalities. Segregation is an immoral law. It's not rooted in the eternal and natural law, and therefore it's an unjust law. He says also unjust laws put in place a false sense of superiority in those who are in the dominating group and a false sense of inferiority in the oppressed group. Unjust laws create a condition of I and it rather than I and thou relationships. So people become as things so one side remains their and remains and retains their personhood the other side is treated as an it or as a thing also in unjust laws the majority compels something onto the minority that they don't bind on themselves that is an unjust law Unjust laws are also laws where the minority has no part in devising and enacting the law. Rather, devious methods are used to prevent blacks from registering, for example, as voters. So what is voted on as the law, in essence, is not democratic. And of course, we have very similar things going on in our society today. Where people are creating conditions, redrawing lines for how votes take place that are designed ultimately to disenfranchise certain people groups and to reduce their voice in the public square. So laws that are created in these ways are considered unjust, and we have a moral responsibility to disobey those laws. Now, because they were laws, if you disobeyed them, you might get thrown in jail or there may be a consequence. And in nonviolent social action, you have to build up your internal strength and be ready to be in jail for the week or however long you're going to have to be there for this unjust situation. Now, when laws are just, they certainly follow the democratic process. People have a chance to weigh in. They're applied equally to all persons, and they are in harmony with the eternal and natural laws. And when that's the case, all of us have a responsibility to follow those laws. On the issue of the law, Dr. King also went on to say that he has the highest respect for law. And that's why he, in participating in civil disobedience, is willing to accept the consequences of the jail time. And he says that some laws appear just on the surface, but they are unjustly applied. And he reminded us that everything that Hitler did in Germany, was legal, but that did not make it just. The actions that those who fought against Hitler, what they did providing assistance to their Jewish brethren, those things were illegal, though they were the right things to do. He also reminded the United States that the Boston Tea Party was a massive civil disobedient act, and yet, it was something that we felt was important to do at the time. Dr. King also talked about the problem with what he called white moderates. He says the problem with white moderates is that they want order more than justice. And they want what he calls a negative piece, which means the absence of tension, more than a positive piece. And a positive peace is the presence of justice. So I want you to hear that again. A negative peace is the absence of tension, whereas a positive peace is the presence of justice. And we cannot be satisfied with just absence of tension. We're going for the presence of justice. And often the moderates would say, oh, well, we agree with your goals, but we don't agree with your methods. He says, this is all a matter of inaction, and it's a mythical concept of time. So their acceptance is lukewarm, and that was bewildering to him. And more so than outright rejection, which he did understand. So he described moderates as being dams that block the flow to social progress. Likewise, he talked about the white church. And he also talked about the problem with waiting. He says the white church is more cautious than courageous. Courageous. He says they're more interested in the paralyzing chains of conformity and being passive on the sidelines. He says that they have scarred the body of Christ through social neglect. And ultimately, he says, churches that take on this mindset will be dismissed as irrelevant and become nothing more than social clubs. He reminds the church of the Bible days, reminding them that the church in its day was a radical organization and institution in Bible days and they fought against things that were unjust and that were not right at the time. He says that waiting often means never. Waiting dampens the momentum of people so that Those in the dominant space can go back to business as usual. And Dr. King says that the cup of endurance runs over. It's legitimate and it's unavoidable to be impatient under these conditions that people were undergoing. And, you know, it's easy to say, wait, when you're not being the one lynched, when you're not being the one disenfranchised and held in chains of poverty. And so he says this justice is too long delayed and it's too long denied. And he says the pent up emotions from oppression over such a long period of time will ultimately be expressed. And without legitimate outlets, such as the nonviolent social change action that he's recommending, those expressions could end up in violence coming from other quarters. Now, Dr. King's call to action for them as the church and also to us today, he gives the call to action through tears of love. Tears of love because he really cared about his fellow clergymen. And he really did believe that they were genuine. So he first had some words of inspiration. And he says, right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Number two, he wanted to encourage them to dig a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of despair. He says injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And number four, the time is always right to do right. So the call to action is to rid the nation of racial and economic injustice, number one. Two, injustice must be rooted out by strong, determined action. And the bottom line is we each have to decide what kind of extremist we will be. Will we be an extremist for hate? Or will we be an extremist for love? Those are the two choices. Those are the two options. And Dr. King's message is just as timely today as it was back when he gave it in 1963 we can still use the four tenets of social change. I want to review those here just in case you might have missed it a little bit. Those four tenets of nonviolent social change action are collection of the facts, which we need to do even today in circumstances. Number two, negotiation. Number three, self-purification, prepare your own heart and your own self for action, because the fourth step is direct action. And the purpose of direct action is to go right back up to negotiation and to gather and collectively come up with solutions that really are the win-win solutions. So I hope you're inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King today, and I hope that it will make a difference in how you move forward into this new year. leadership resources.